and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Good morning. So glad to be with you as we open up our Bibles and dive into chapter 6. Go ahead and get your Bibles out if you would. The Gospel of John, it's a New Testament book, kind of to the middle, then to the right. What a joy it is to see you guys. I've been seeing you take notes. I see you pulling out your phones, taking pictures of the slides. Um, I see spiritual fruit, or at least I hear spiritual fruit, uh, being produced in the lives uh, as you guys, and as we grow into the people God designed us to be. Well, let's get moving with a reminder of where we are in chapter 6. Our shepherding elder, Jerry, thank you so much for doing that. Jesus is speaking to this crowd who has followed him to Capernaum to seek more bread, to get him to do more miracles, to get him to give bread every day, maybe make him king by force. And Jesus uses bread as this picture of God sending his son, Jesus as the true bread, the spiritual bread of heaven. Now we're hanging out in these few verses because in them, Jesus teaches us how someone is actually saved. How they are redeemed and then made in to a child of God. Now, for reference to see where we are, let's look at some of the old reform school, uh, or <laughs> reform school, reform doctrine school of thought. Uh, I like the reform school. But, and then unpack those for us. We call these the dogs, the doctrines of grace. They're simply those five major headings that just stand together as one statement of the comprehensive saving grace or purposes of God. It's how God's saving doctrine works. Here it is. You've written these down before. Doctrines of grace, radical depravity. Number two, sovereign election. Number three, definite atonement. Number four, irresistible call. And number five, preserving grace. Now rush through these a little bit because we've done them the last Three weeks here, and we'll keep doing them as long as Jesus is talking about them. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, preserving grace. These stand together and how we are saved. It's the doctrine of how we are saved. Salvation is totally a work of, of our triune God. Last week, we began uh, with the uh, irresistible call. We looked at that, and we also examined but weeks before that radical depravity, total depravity. Uh, you, you remember in Ephesians 2, last week when we looked, the Apostle Paul reminds believers in the church and in Ephesus that before we are born again, before we are given life and regenerated, that we are all dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses, Unable to respond to the spiritual things of God. Now let's look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 again for just a moment. Paul tells us, tells the Christians there at Ephesus, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Underline dead. This should be clear in your Bible. In which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Notice not the sons of God, the sons of disobedience. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And were by nature 
children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now remember, this is written to believers. He's saying this is what you and I faced before Christ redeems us. It's pretty damning stuff. To be dead in our sins and trespasses means dead in our sins and trespasses. But even worse, even worse is that not only did we not follow Jesus before we are born again, we actually followed the prince of the power of the air. And you know who that would be? It's Satan. It says, you, by nature, you were children of Satan. If you stopped there, we would be in serious trouble, headed for hell. Then a powerful statement comes right next in verse 4, a truth that brings us life. The apostle says in the very next verse, he says, but God, boy, this will make me cry. Like, like Jerry, I go, man, this will make me cry. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Look at how that starts. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. When some people have read that, some people will say, see, see, he loves everyone ever uh, created without exception. But they forget or they at least choose to ignore the immediate context Paul is writing to is believers in Ephesus, the redeemed. Now, when we read this, we have to remember that it says, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. It doesn't say, but God with my permission, save me. Now back to John 6, just before our passage we're in today, Jesus had just told them, you've seen me, you've actually seen the miracles that I do, and yet you don't believe me. Now let me open your eyes to something that you may never have noticed before here. And, and where we're picking up this week is what we can think of is this, write this down, this is huge, the greatest contract of all time occurs when God the Father gives Jesus God the Son, some of those held in God's hand awaiting judgment. I'll give you time. There's plenty to write there. The greatest contract of all time. We mean that. When God the Father gives Jesus, who is God the Son, some of those held in God's hands who are awaiting judgment. In other words, they're all guilty. We call this the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption before the foundation of the world between God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God. The who, what, when, and where of salvation was determined and what role each of member of the Godhead would play. God the Father's plan procured by the Son, applied by the Spirit, let's look again at what Jesus describes for us. Jesus says in verse 37 of chapter 6 of John, he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Now this verse is talking about this great transaction that was before time that God the Father has given to the Son. And looking at this, it appears that Jesus is saying that all people are in God's hands and face certain judgment because of their sin at a future point. Do you get that picture? 
because all people are born in Adam and his sin is imputed into us and then we're guilty of our own sin, all face the wrath of God for their sin. Everyone ever created. But out of all the people in God's hands, God the Father unconditionally chooses some of those guilty ones to give to Jesus as a wonderful act of grace, mercy, and love. And it's not just an act of love towards us, it's towards us, yes, but as John MacArthur says, he he points this out, the elect believers are also a gift of love from the Father to the Son for the Son, because these people, the elect, will be the ones who will live for Jesus and, and worship him for all time, unconditionally. He doesn't require work from them in choosing them. Now, that's another area of the doctrines of grace, the dogs that I want us to begin to see here. Um, What Jesus is talking about is God choosing some of those guilty people in God's hands and giving them life, giving them to the Son, giving them life to the Holy Spirit. Always keep in mind that God is under no obligation to save anyone. He would be perfectly just if he chose to save no one. Now remember what we said last week. These are secondary issues. They are secondary issues, but the reason people can go get so upset with them quickly is because they pertain to top level or closed handed issues. Now think about the doctrines of grace for just a moment. Here they are all written down. Radical depravity, sovereign election, definite atonement, irresistible call, preserving grace. What we're trying to do there is trying to outline what Jesus is preaching about. Now, if you removed the first word in each of the first of the four, most Christians would be cool with what's left. Most, not all, love number five, preserving grace. That once saved, always saved thing. But if the first four are not true with the adjectives, then number five cannot be true. They work together. And Jesus teaches us, we'll look at what I think is right, true, solid doctrine. This is old school doctrine. But I'm also going to bring up some doctrine that, that some Christians have in this room that, that disagree with this. Those are good Christians that come down on, uh, on uh, the other side of this. But let's start with the definition of the second of the dogs, and that is election. Write this down. Election, you see this all through the Bible, the elect, election, God's sovereignty, Choosing to save us when we can't save ourselves. Choosing to save us when we can't save ourselves. Now let's look at what Jesus tells this unbelieving crowd of thousands who want more bread. Who have just said they wouldn't follow him unless he gives them more bread and maybe becomes their king. They want to see more miracles before they have faith to believe. So Jesus says in verse 37, he says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Now think through this. All have permission to come to Jesus, don't they? All have. But only those in whom the Father sovereignly chooses out of those guilty people and then enables will come to Jesus. 
Now, who enables them to come? This verse right here is why we preach the gospel every week. Because we don't know who God has chosen. Only God knows that. Our job is simply to share the gospel and to pray for the lost. It's only God that can wake them from the dead. Now, as we look at this verse, let's look at its different parts. Let's start with the idea that says that God the Father gives something, someone to Jesus. Get real basic with it. That means God the Father must be able to give at least some of the people in his hands into Jesus. Someone that belongs to God the Father, he gives them into the hands of Jesus. Now, this is one of those areas that I used to think about this very wrong. When I would hear this kind of teaching, I would think, no way. My faith is in my hands, thank you very much. I can choose anything I want or I cannot choose. But that's not really true, is it? According to Jesus, at least according to what his teaching is here. I mean, we have some freedom of activity, don't we? We've got some choices in this life. And I, I make my own choices about some stuff. But in this verse, God clearly is telling us a much deeper truth, isn't he? And that is that we are in God's hands, really, whether we are believers or unbelievers. So the question comes to my mind, it's got to be coming to your mind, what about those that God the Father does not give to Jesus as his inheritance for whom he died? The non-elect is what we call them, are left to live their lives on their own. Their own sin, follow their own desires, do what they want all the way to the end of their life. Eventually, they will face the judgment of God. And the judge will be Jesus himself. Now, Jesus simply says, thy will be done to these people until you face me at judgment. Truth is, God would be perfectly just to choose no one. The real question is, isn't why doesn't God save everyone? The real question is why does God save anyone? Are you with me? You see what I mean? Let me say it again. The real question isn't why, does, why doesn't God save everyone? The real question is why does God save anyone? We're all guilty, none worthy. Probably the greatest Reformed American theologian in the 1700s was Jonathan Edwards. He speaks about this, and it's powerful. Uh, In fact, he gave a sermon one time that was so powerful. The sermon and this doctrine specifically literally changed the course of our nation. God used that sermon to light a fuse on the bomb of that we call the Great Awakening that drew much of our country to him. Edwards titled his sermon, he said, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. That all people were in the hands of God. In other words, he's sovereign and we're all guilty, right? Jonathan Edwards then preached. He said the answer to the question that we're talking about, he presented it so well that... People were hearing that they're in the hands of an angry God and they were guilty. That it scared them so badly they began to shake. His point was simple. Outside of Jesus saving grace, there is no hope. Here's a quote from that sermon. 
There is no other reason to be given why you have not dropped into hell since you arose this morning, but that God's hand helped you, held you up. You see what Edwards is saying? Since you have no basis to stand on your own, Edwards is just slapping them with some cold, hard truth. Because of that realization, he said this. He says, you need then to consider yourselves and awake thoroughly out of sleep. What's crazy about our little minds here is that God is sovereign even in the use of that sermon back then to bring people to himself. In other words, God chose that sermon that day to start that great awakening, didn't he? Now, God sets that up. He uses the preaching of the word just like we're doing right now to bring people to himself. God is doing that, not me. He uses Christians like you and you and you to share the gospel and wake people from spiritual death so that they realize they are sinners and turn to God in repentance and belief. It's why we share the gospel story. Because God uses that story to save people, those he has chosen to save in Christ Jesus. By the way, this is why we pray for our unsaved family and friends. This is why we pray for them. Think about that. When you're asking God, what are you asking God to do? Save them. Save them. They have no capability. You're asking God to regenerate them, to bring them to life in Christ by the power of the Spirit. So they turn from their sin, follow Jesus. That's what you're praying for. Now, when you pray for the lost, and you should regularly, in the back of one of my uh, prayer books, I have a list of people that I'm praying for, a long list. You're asking God, save them. That's some truth right there. Everything you are, everything you have, if God is real, then even your very life is from him alone, even the breath you're taking right now. The illusion is that you are the captain of your own ship. But that's just an illusion. God's the captain. Now, but what is so great about verse 37 is that at least some of those in God's hands are given in faith to Jesus. God the Father calls his own, calls them his own. They are his. He chooses them. He calls them from death to life. He elects them. That's why that that word's all through the Bible. Elects means chosen. That's why the TV show's called The Chosen. God the Father chooses them not on the basis of any foreseen quality they have or action on their part, but solely, as the theologian J.I. Packer once said, he said this, as an expression of his free and sovereign grace. For it is unconstrained, unconditional, unmerited by anything in those who are its subjects. Let's jump to John 17 for a minute. Jump over to John 17. This passage takes place in the Garden of Gethsemane just before Jesus is betrayed by his own disciples, his own disciple Judas. He's arrested, led away to suffering and crucifixion. That's about to happen right after this. Jesus is praying earnestly to the Father he knows this is, he's facing this and the prayer is really revealing who Jesus is as the Son of God, who is God the Father. All right, it gives us this tiny little glimpse into the relationship of the Godhead, the Trinity. It's important to understand this, to see 
how and why we are saved. Jesus prays the first half of that verse. He says, Father, the hour has come. Talking about the crucifixion. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Now, what's the meaning? That Jesus is about to face crucifixion, right? But that in his death on that cross, Jesus is going to bring glory to God the Father. Now, how is Jesus going to bring glory to God the Father by being crucified and beaten? Jesus continues uh, praying to the Father. Second half, since you have given him, the Son, I put that in, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you, the Father, have given him, the Son. Do you see it again? We see right here in Jesus' prayer that he has been granted authority over all mankind, all flesh, all of creation. To do what? To give life to those the Father has given him. It's as clear as a bell. So look, here it is again. Jesus is talking about those whom the Father holds in his hand that are guilty. And out of that number, God the Father chooses to give some to the Son. And then Jesus is going to give glory to God the Father by giving eternal life to all whom the Father has given him. You tracking with what Jesus is saying here? How is Jesus going to give this glory? By dying for the sins of those that the Father has given him and giving the same ones then his righteousness he has earned as a child of God. Now making them a child of God. That's the gospel right there, isn't it? We're seeing it again, this doctrine of election of God choosing those out of his hand that are guilty and giving those to the Son. Now, we touched on this last week, but I want us to go deeper now because Jesus is about to take us deeper in John 6. So back to John 6. Who are these elect that God the Father is going to give the Son? Who are they? The Apostle Paul which he is writing, when he's writing to the Christians in Eph, uh, Ephesus, look at Ephesians 1, 4, I have it up here, you don't have to look there. He shows us who the elect are. Now I'm going to read this passage and then we'll come look at it up close. I'm going to point out the names, I'll put them in orange there for you, who it's referring to so that we know who's doing what. Make sense? Follow along really close. Even as he, the Father, chose us, the elect, in him, the son, before the foundation of the world. That'll blow your mind. That we, the elect, should be holy and blameless before him, the father. In love, he, meaning the father, predestined us, the elect, for adoption to himself, the father. As sons through Jesus Christ, the Son, according to the purpose of His, the Father's will. Now, what we are seeing in the text here with this great transaction that took place in eternity past, before creation, between the Father and the Son, then what we see is that these specific things we will need to occur then inside creation, inside time. In space. To make enemies of God into children of God. 
Now look back at chapter 6 of John for just a second. John 6, 37. He says, all the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now check this out. At that point in time, when Jesus was saying this to this big crowd of thousands, remember, he is separating true followers from false followers. You remember that? Jesus is waiting for all those, the total number that the Father has given him before creation, before time began, to come to him now during creation, during time. Notice how the present tense changes to the future tense. All the Father gives me will come. Now he's referring to you. The Bible, it's talking about you. You're in the Bible. The people in the future that would come, like you and me and you and you and you, the people that I know that believe this is such a powerful thing. Jesus says, because of that, look in verse 38, he says, for I have come down from heaven. Not only to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. He has come to save those that the Father has given him, hasn't he? This is why he has come. He said, I came for this reason. To find those the Father has given me. So Jesus just really makes it really clear. Look at the first half of verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me. Jesus is going to share with this crowd the will of God. God the Father has sent him. He says that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise, them, but raise it up on the last day. Verse 39 is talking about the eternal, unchanging will of God. It goes from past then to present when it says, All the Father, He, talking about God the Father, has given me. We could say it like this. The choice of God the Father in eternity past has an effect on our now and present. And that effect is that men and women come to Christ now inside time. Coming as messed up, wicked sinners who realize that they can't save themselves from their own sin. They come realizing that they have nothing, nothing to offer God and no ability to save themselves. They come to Christ in order that they will receive everything from Jesus. They have nothing, but they receive everything. They have nothing to offer Jesus, but their sin and in exchange they receive his what? His righteousness. That's what the apostle Paul meant in 2 Corinthians Chapter 5, verse 21, when Paul says, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now break this down. I'm going to put the the names in with it just so we see who he's talking about. For our sake, the elect, he, the father, made him the son of To be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, the son, we, the elect, might become the righteousness of God, the father. Somebody say amen. That's good news right there. So put it all together. I know I'm drilling you on this. Look at this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you understand the weight of that truth, it is awesome. Like the third verse of the Rock of Ages. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I fly to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Now, if you're getting this, if you're understanding, if you, it will have an effect on you. If you have been made alive by the Spirit of, in Christ Jesus, if you have been born again, this hits you, doesn't it? This will make a pastor cry right here. That you had nothing to offer God, but he chose you. Not because you love, he loves you. Not just because he loves you. Not because you chose him first. Let me say, see if we can sum up what Jesus is saying so far. He's saying, look, before time began, God the Father gave me a people for myself to save who were condemned just like the rest of all Doomed to judgment because of their own sin. But he gave some of those in his hand whom he chose before creation began. Before time, he gave them to me that I could come into creation, take on the flesh of man, live this perfect life to purchase their freedom by paying for their sin on the cross. That I could give them my Righteousness that I earned through my perfect life so that they could become children of God, saved, redeemed, made alive spiritually so that I could bring glory to God the Father and carry out his plan, his will for my life and the universe. Now watch this next thing Jesus says in verse 40. John 6, verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. He emphasizes once again, here's the will of the Father, his plan in all this. Second half of that verse, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Now, what Jesus does now is that he shows us the mechanism of how we're saved. We know why we're saved, but now we're going to understand how we are saved. Now, what is it? Here it is. Write this down. How the elect are saved. Everyone who looks on Jesus and believes in him. How the elect are saved. Everyone who looks on Jesus And believes in him. That's how we're saved. So the obvious question. At least to me. How are the people to look on Jesus and believe? Isn't that the question? Here it is. The mechanism that God has established for people to look on Jesus and believe. Is to hear the gospel preached. 
the mechanism or the way that God established for people to look on Jesus and believe is to hear the gospel preached. It's why we're here today. It's why I preach the gospel. It's why with Pastor Jeff or Pastor Hunter or Pastor Al, any of the, they preach the gospel. If you're not a Christian, will you come to Jesus? Look on him. In other words, look at what he has done. Will you put your faith and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Will you believe? Some don't get it. After hearing what I just preached about the doctrines of grace, they say something like, but if I'm not one of those that God has given uh, to Christ Jesus, then I can't come. I can't be saved. Listen closely. If you believe in Jesus and place your faith in him, you will be saved. Do you hear that truth? While it's true that there are people that are chosen, we don't know who those elect are. We just don't know. We can't tell who they are. Please know that it's not our job to even figure that out. That's in God's hands. Jesus is just telling us how this works. All we know is that the gospel has been shown to you and described to you and Jesus gives the command, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. But a very good indication that you are one of his God's calling to life is that you feel a sense of guilt, a sense of helplessness for all your screw-ups. Listen to me. Unregenerate people don't necessarily feel that. Why? Because they're dead spiritually. So will you come? Will you come? I know that you can try to think through it all and there's a bunch to sort out and we'll keep going through this as long as Jesus does, but don't worry about that right now. Because at the end of the day, God has given certain people to Jesus, the Son of God, to save. And he saves them. And if this is (laughs) irrevocable and determined by God, then why should you not be among those that God has given to the Savior? Think about this. It has encouraged me a ton over the years. There is no exception in what is described in John 6. 6. All the Father has given to Jesus shall come. There is no exception in what is described in John 6. All the Father has given to Jesus shall come. It's why we preach the gospel. It's why we share the gospel where we live. So that we can reach all that the Father has called. I told you that this will shake you up a bit. Because this changes the way we have been taught, doesn't it? About salvation. That it's all on us. Wrong. You see, in the past, I would have argued that Jesus came to die on the cross. And be resurrected from the dead to make salvation, listen closely, possible. No. No, no. As the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Actually save sinners, not just make salvation possible, but make it secure. And then Paul adds, among whom I am the foremost of all sinners. If there ever was a poster child for the doctrine of election, it's the Apostle Paul. 
He was on his way to kill Christians. And God said, nope, you're one of mine now. Here's the right way to say it. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection make salvation, salvation secure for those that believe. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection make salvation secure for those that believe. And that Jesus promises to not lose even one. Isn't that amazing? You want to know why he goes after the lost sheep? Because they're his. You see, salvation doesn't rest on your ability to keep yourself saved and in the good graces of God. That's exactly what our Roman Catholic friends believe. It's our triune God who does that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. It's a triple team deal. That's why dog number five is preserving grace. This is an encouragement to me as a preacher, and it should be to you as a Christian called to share the gospel with those around you where you live. Because we read in history and that there are times in the past when the gospel message is shared and preached at great cost to those who share it. Many times even costing their jobs, their livelihoods, and even their lives. And sometimes that gospel message just seems to not have any effect at all, does it? Thinking back to the parable of the sower in Matthew 13, you remember that? When Jesus shared about the sower spreading the seeds of the gospel on all the different types of ground, do you remember? You remember? That seed is the gospel message and the types of ground are the types of heart. Sometimes that seed falls on stony ground or on the path or in the weeds and people kind of respond, but then they don't really. In times like that, it's disheartening to share the gospel. But then there are other times that the gospel seed falls on the soil that has been plowed and turned over and tilled and made ready. Ground that has been broken up, listen to me, by the sower. The ground doesn't prepare itself. It never has. The sower is the one that turned it over and got it ready. In those times, tons of people respond to the gospel or are made alive, repent, they're saved. We long for those times when we see God move. We are the sowers, right? We share the gospel. We could get down about people not responding at times, in times of drought, on the other side, in times when lots of people are hearing the gospel message, repenting and turning to Jesus. What an amazing thing is. We could think, hey, look how great I am at sharing the gospel. I'm really good at this. No. God, the Holy Spirit, is the only one that can wake the spiritually dead. But he uses us sharing the gospel to save people. It is the mechanism the truth is, brothers and sisters, we don't know why God has chosen to save some through the foolishness, you heard me, foolishness of preaching and witnessing and sharing the gospel, but he has. Now, before you get upset with me, maybe you think I'm calling God a fool for this, doing it this way. No, 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 I'm just quoting the Apostle Paul. He says in 1 Corinthians 1.21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God's 
Uh, the world did not know God through, the, through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. On the surface, it feels like it shouldn't work this way. Like you sharing the gospel and people getting saved that way. But that is because our wisdom is not God's wisdom. We trust God's wisdom we find in the Bible. God's ways are always counterintuitive to our ways. That's what he means when he says through the prophet Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. We work to find the lost and share the gospel with them, trusting that God will save them. But it's tiring work, isn't it? It's tiring work. I know that I'm tempted at times to give up. I'm tempted to stop. But we can't stop. Our role here is to preach the gospel, to share with those around us the life-saving message of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul also said in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Our job is to do our part, but, but to let the results be up to God. They can't be up to us. Well, at first glance, this looks like a really good place to land the plane, but I, we've gone deep in what Jesus is revealing about his relationship to the Father and how the Father has given the elect to Jesus. We went deep there, I know. And how Jesus made our salvation secure, not just possible. But there's one more very important thing that we need to hear in this little part. We've looked at this um, before a little bit, but this may bend your mind. may make smoke come out your ears. But write this down. None of the doctrines of grace places a limit in any way on the free offer of God's grace through the gospel. None of the doctrines of grace places a limit in any way on the free offer of God's grace through the gospel. You go, Paul, you just just spent this time preaching. Listen to me. This is the offer of the second half of verse 37. In most of our study today, we've looked at the first half of verse 37, verse 36, Next time we get together, God willing, we'll unpack the second half of verse 37 in detail because of its message is so very important. You cannot miss that week. But I don't want us to miss this today. Look at verse 37 one more time. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let those words sink in. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. What an awesome thought. What an offer. What a promise. The way Jesus says it is universal. No restrictions. Anyone is welcome to come to Jesus in any way, at any time. Young, old, bold, timid, tall, short. You may have heard the gospel today for the very first time. Or maybe you heard it years ago and you never converted. None of that matters right now. 
The only thing that really matters is whether or not you will come to the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. But maybe you're thinking, but what must I do? The answer is clearly nothing. In fact, you can't do anything to be saved. Because let's be honest, shall we? If you're like me, you've messed up your life pretty bad with sin. Me too. The question is not, what should I do? But really is, what has Jesus done? He died for sinners, just like me, just like you. The work, the only work that matters, Jesus' work is finished on the cross. Let go of your attempts to be trying to be good enough and somehow get God's attention because you're good enough and get approval. Instead, simply come to Jesus. His arms are open wide to receive you. Now what? What do you do with all this stuff I just gave you? Well, a ton. You have an entire life to live in front of you, but first steps are always first, right? After our service today, our shepherding elders will be up here with their wives and will be available to talk with you, pray through you, answer questions, and they, you, they can point you to next steps. Like, what do you need to do as far as, far as following Jesus? Like, we have this thing we call the Bent Tree Discipleship Pathway that will help guide you on your way following Jesus. The shepherding elders can help you walk that pathway, get you plugged into resources that will get you going. They'll answer questions for you, and they are a rich resource. Let's go ahead and go to God in prayer. Would you just bow your head? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come before you and to have your written word that we can read and and preach from and understand. But God, we know that it's nothing without the power of your Holy Spirit moving in our hearts. So we thank you for the Holy Spirit moving right now. God, for those that are believing, that have been believing for many, many years, or those that have just believed, God, would you help us all on our journey to take those steps? What is the next step that I need to do? God, I pray for those that are brand new in the faith that they would begin to follow you, that they would plug in here, that they would get baptized, that they would show the world, just confess that I am alive in Christ Jesus. God, we thank you for the chance to be together today and hear your word preached. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Well, if you would take your communion cup If you are a believer in Christ Jesus, if you've been baptized in the the faith, you can go ahead and take those pieces out. If you're not a believer, don't be part of this. This is just for believers, not to hurt your feelings. Before the service, I led the band in, in this, and you take that little piece of bread, this represents the body of Christ broken for us, doesn't it? On the night before Jesus was crucified, he took the bread and he broke it. You want to snap that in your finger and you feel it? His body the next day would suffer tremendous suffering, tremendous pain on the way to Calvary. Those lashes, that crown of thorns, the beating, those were meant for me. Those were meant for you. 
Jesus took that bread and he said, take and eat. Take and eat the body of Christ. Then he took the last cup of all the cups of the Passover feast they had celebrated. It's called the cup of suffering. He said, this is my blood, represents my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. You see, we do this to remember, but it's not just remembering. We are receiving right now the grace of God is being poured out for us. The Spirit is pouring that ordinary means of grace to us. That the blood that purchased our freedom, the blood that ran from His head, His hands, His feet, His side, His back, that should have been our blood, but it wasn't. He said, let my blood take their place and buy their freedom. Because of His sinless life, His blood pays for our forgiveness. Past present, future sins even. And it looks forward to the time when we will celebrate with Him in heaven. Jesus said, this is the blood of the new covenant that we live in. The already and the not yet. We've been purchased by God. Set free. And yet we still live in this wicked world. We're waiting on that day when we will be glorified. This is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of sins. Take and drink. Father, we remember what you have done and your love that you have demonstrated for us by giving Jesus to us as a sacrifice to take our place. We live with that freedom and the responsibility to follow you, Jesus, for the rest of our days. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.